Hey everybody, it is episode 42 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris joining you from Rogue in Austin, Texas. Steve is here with me. Hey Steve. Hello everyone. We are excited today to really focus on a training topic. It's just going to be Steve and I kind of taking you through the what some of sometimes we call the 1%, the things that you need to be doing outside your running, the things, the little things that add up to supplement your running that will help make you a healthier and better runner. We've got some questions on this from various of you out there, listeners, and so we wanted to de- dedicate an entire episode to all the other things you should be doing, strength work, stretching, mobility, drills, proper nutrition, sleep, foam rolling, massage, etc., in order to stay healthy as a runner and hopefully also optimize your running. Because it's about the running, but it's also about so much more. So we're going to get to that and cover those things in detail. Over time, we may come back to specific components of that, like strength, for example, and dive in. But today, we're going to give you an overview of all the other activities you should be considering to make yourself a better runner. Before we do that, we've got a couple of current events or at least updates to talk about. On our last episode, episode 41, we gave our predictions for the Chicago Marathon and maybe that was too soon, Steve, because we had already a change in the field that will likely have a meaningful impact on the podium. So we need to recap that quickly and perhaps change our pick. So the Chicago Marathon coming up here in a few weeks, probably I think 11 or 12 days from this episode's release date, has a new entrant that I think meaningfully impacts the field. His name is Stanley Biwat. He finished second in London last year to the great Eliud, Eliud Kipchoge in 203.51. So we've got a new legit contender. He's also a racer because he got, I think he won New York City Marathon in 2015, I think. Yes, so he has a New York City victory. That's as a big well. one. Yeah. So that, it, that. So he's not just a guy who can run behind a pacer, he can also right. win a little bit of a cagier battle like in New York. So, how does this impact your picks? Obviously, Rupp's getting a little bit stiffer competition now. Does this, in your mind, does this knock Rupp off the top? Theoretically, it should. Um, Rupp's only run. Rupp's now run three major marathons, right? The trials, the games, and and Boston. Boston. Um, He's got a first, a third. And a and a second, um, and I think that Galen's going to come ready to roll, and I think Galen's going to come ready to win. But I do think that before it was just a ho hum yawn, going to go back to sleep. I'm not even going to wake <laughs> up for this one. We'll see what the results happen. Although I do want to watch the, as I said before, I want to watch the U.S. race, see what happens behind um, behind Rupp. But I still think Rupp wins. I'm gonna I'm gonna give Rupp the win over Biwat. But I think it'll be a race, and I think that he will get tested, and we will find out re- whether Rupp is real, a real marathoner. Of course, it's pretty hard to say that when he was Olympic bronze medalist. <laughs> so, you know, I feel a little bit bad saying that, but I, I still think he's going to win, but I, I think he's going to have to prove it. And um, I'm not just saying that to be a contrarian, because I'm pretty sure you're probably going to pick uh, <laughs> B-Y, I don't know that for sure, but I think uh, I think that 
I, I think that I think that that Rupp will get the win here, even even with Bwat there. But I think the two will separate somewhere early, and I think Bwat will throw haymakers at him, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. So I th- I'm gonna say first of all, it's worth mentioning too that Rupp did another tune-up race this past weekend at the Philadelphia Rock and Roll Half Marathon. He had a nice race in New Haven at the U.S. 20K Champs. He ran 102 and change in Philly this past weekend on a really warm, humid morning. And probably a guaranteed controlled effort, you know. Right. And, one, you know, he won. Jay, our Yarm Leon, our, our guest from a prior episode on running and mortality, he was there in Philly racing this as a part of a, a cause, a cancer-related cause that he's involved with. And he said it was miserable. It was 70s at the start, humid really really gross conditions so to be able to run 102 in that probably without a lot of challenge and without a lot of people going with him means he's ready he's definitely ready and so i tend to stay with you on this one i don't think rub is going to be denied i also probably am a bit of a conspiracy theorist uh (laughs) you know similar to how you referenced you know lalisa being in there i i think this late ad is sort of a token beef up the field kind of move. He is a he is a Nike <laughs> athlete. Typically, so Watt is a Nike. Typically, <laughs> if you're going to get add to a race this late, I you know I don't know that it's necessarily about his fitness. It may just be about his resume mm-hmm. to give Rupp another scalp, another big scalp. So I'm going to sort of assume that Watt may not be at the top of his game going into this, but Rupp clearly is. So I'm going to give him the win still. I do think Biwat probably knocks Karui off the podium or Lalisa off the podium, depending on how fit either of those guys is. So I think he'll probably slot into two or three somewhere. Yeah, I'll put him second. I put, I'll put him second as well. But I agree. I think Rupp, Rupp stays on top of this field, and it does add just, you know, announce more of intrigue. Yes. We also have to mention that Jordan has a, who's in the women's field at Chicago, just like we discussed last week, also raced at Philly. She ran a 110, which I think would be more of what I would expect from her on a hot and humid day, kind of in prep for a marathon. Doesn't really tell me anything more than I had sort of already seen from New Haven about her fitness, but I think she'll be ready to roll as well. So Yeah, we're a number of weeks away, but I've got an athlete running the Chicago half this weekend, and it's looking warm for them this weekend. You know, it's so. kind of been all over the place. I was looking at the, the Minneapolis forecast because we've got folks doing that mm-hmm. on October 1st and you know yesterday the low is 53 today's the low is in the 70s so yeah. it's kind of been all over the place I think they're they're getting taunted by fall the long-range forecast at least for Twin Cities is looking good right now it's showing high 40s for Twin Cities if you look at the 15-day forecast so hopefully we'll get something more like that for Chicago as well but we'll see Okay, so that's our Chicago update. Now we've got to turn to some, you know, some sort of different current events. For those that have heard us talk about the Breaking Two project with Nike and Elliot, Elliot Kipchoge's attempt to break two hours, they recently released a documentary on that attempt on the National Geographic channel. It came out last night as we're recording here. I watched it. I, I DVR'd it and watched it this morning as a sort of a way to lick my wounds after a tough workout. <laughs> but it was it was a one that I, I highly recommend you try to go find. 
you know, it's on Na- National Geographic Channel. I'm sure they'll be replaying it. So look for that. I'm sure at some point it'll be up online somewhere. But it's it's a one-hour chronology of the Nike Breaking 2 attempt. Kind of goes behind the scenes with some of the things that the scientists were doing. It has a lot of athlete interviews, which I thought were probably the most intrav- interesting components, both before and after, sort of getting their inside views of the attempt and their mental preparation for it and their reactions after it. Elliot, Elliot Kipchoge, as you might expect, stole the show on on that day by running two hours and 25 seconds. He also stole the show for this documentary because mm. his interviews were by far the most compelling footage they had. You know, some of it, as you know, I am a skeptic, was a little bit of a, too much of a Nike commercial for me. But I do think some of the mental elements that Kipchoge talked about and some of the scientists talked about, as I was telling you earlier, Steve, one of the scientists was like, you know, I can quantify how much these guys can do from a physiological standpoint by testing their blood and testing their VO2 max. I can quantify how much the shoes and the drag reduction and the weather can impact what they can do to try to get that formula for what's possible. But the big thing I can't calculate and don't fully understand is this black box on my paper, which is like the mental element. And he was talking about how Kipchoge clearly is far and away above the rest in that dimension. And, you know, and basically for him means that he doesn't know what the limits are because the mind, you know, plays a role. And Kipchoge himself had a couple of really good quotes in there. One of my favorites is that you can't let the mind rule you. You have to rule the mind, basically. And so he was kind of asking that question, you know, will the mind rule you or will you rule it? And it was clear that he is someone who rules his mind. <laughs> um, not to mention the fact that he's just so efficient, so beautiful in motion. I mean, at times, you know, his struggle face, like his grimace in some of the close-up footage, it's almost like a smile. <laughs> so it points in that race where he clearly had started to struggle. I it's remember. Like it's mile 22 or so, and he's clearly starting, you know, not to fade, but not to get what he wanted out of his efforts. He was kind of, you know, grimacing a little bit, but it was like I couldn't tell if he was smiling and enjoying it or if he was actually grimacing. It became clear as it progressed that he was grimacing because he pretty much grimaced the whole way down the finishing stretch. He's got a little Yoda in him, doesn't he? Or or oh, totally. or a uh, or a, uh, a a a shaved head Buddhist monk that uh, very zen. Yes, very zen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you could describe him, I think, as a, a marathon guru. Or Marathon Buddha or something without, you know, any of the extra weight. <laughs> he is, he yeah, he's just so controlled, so calm. And, you know, he's like, look, I believe I can do it. I'm going for it. And even in the end, as his agent was congratulating him, they kind of had, they kind of caught some audio of that at the end. And he said, and he said to his agent, we didn't, we didn't do it. <laughs> you know, and his agent was like, what do you mean? You ran <laughs> two hours and 25 seconds. It's amazing. He's like, but we didn't, we didn't do it. My goal was sub two. So, you know, he's clearly radical. Someone personal responsibility. Who just, yeah. Who's just, uh, um, has the mind of a steel trap and is far and away, not only physically, but also mentally stronger than anybody else out there. Did you see that sweat elite <clears throat> article about his training 
his training log over the blast. I did. Yeah, it was it was really intriguing. A couple of takeaways from that for the folks that um, haven't seen that yet. We'll 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 put up a link to that in the show notes. But I highly recommend folks go look at it. It's really interesting. It was a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday workout schedule, pretty much. Chris it was like pretty interesting, a kind of team roguish. Um, some key things though. More fartlek than I would have expected, probably due to the fact of the the terrain that they're on. It looks like he was on rough country roads nearly um, all of his workouts. He had one workout. He did two long runs, Chris, of 40K, one of them on a cross-country course at at a pretty phenomenal rate yeah. going up and down hills. So that's like under just under 25 miles. Correct. At, 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 a, at a really significantly fast pace on a cross-country course. So... Um, I was really surprised to see that there wasn't as much sort of metronomic on the road, mechanical working that game. It, I, I just would think that they would do a little bit more, but it sounds like Kipchoge is a lot more like, let me get in the best fitness I can possibly get. And then I'll go out and run the best race I can possibly get rather than a, let's get exactly ideally optimally specific to what is going to be the terrain and the course that I'm going to be running on. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Well, and he, he, trains at a camp with a bunch of guys that are all you know roughing it so to speak he's not you know he's a millionaire and could live like a king in kenya and and, uh, they had some clips of his home in kenya in the documentary that's clearly pretty nice but when he trains he goes and trains with the guys and they're sleeping on bunks and he's having to help carry water to and from the well to make sure they can have water to drink and so forth. So it's, it's, it's not lavish conditions under which he's working. And clearly that's a part of his ethos. Absolutely. And he's, you know, I, I made the pick for Bekele, um, but I'm, I'm wavering in my, in my pick, but I'm, I'm staying the course. We'll, you guys will know this already. This will come out on Monday. It'll be all over. And uh, hopefully somehow Bekele pulls out a pulls pulls out the win. Um, are you going to mention the uh, the article we the uh, the email we got the other day? Well, I guess I should. So <laughs> now that I've raised the raised it to you. But yes, but quickly before I get there, yes. By the time you listen to this, Berlin Marathon would have happened. So go look up the results. Go find the highlights. See who won the Kipchoge versus Bekele versus Kip Sang battle, and then go watch breaking to and listen to these and, and read these articles that we're mentioning because I do think becoming a fan of Kipchoge and that group is, you know, understanding everything you can about them. And regardless of what you think about clean or dirty, there's inspiration to be found, I think, especially with him. In terms of Kip saying, so yeah, we got an email this week from a listener and he kind of called you out, Steve. You, you <laughs> made a mention in your in your discussions about Wilson Kipsang last week, episode 41, that he didn't, couldn't win the close race or wasn't, you know, one who would win a close race. And so we had a listener call you out on that. Yeah, and Peter. Send a little video. <laughs> Peter Stewart, thanks for, thanks for calling me out. It's good to get, it's good to get checked. I, uh, anybody that knows me knows I have a tendency to wing it a little bit. So thank you for clipping that wing and uh, bringing me back down to earth. And I thought it was really cool though. I'm, 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 I loved him saying, don't count Kip Sang out. And I'd hope that in that, in our, in our preview, Chris and I weren't, um, Kip Sang's not going to go down on the list of the greatest marathoners of all time. At this point in time, that's a Kipchoge's title. 
Um, if Bekele wins, he'll take it over. I don't think even if Kip Sang beats these two guys that he necessarily will get that title, but he will definitely be. He'll definitely make it challenging. But but believe me, Peter, I am not counting Kip Sang out in the little in the least. I think this is going to be a race for the decade in terms of the marathon. I'm not sure we're going to see another race of this quality. You know, instead of going out and using your uh, abusing your eyes and going to look at the uh, the the full the full solar eclipse that happened a couple mo- a month ago or so, everybody should be up at three o'clock in the morning watching this. Um, yes, because it's going to be worth it, even though it'll be over by the time they're listening to us. <laughs> but I will say, Steve, that we should promise Sorry, and folks, commit to them that. now that we will do a midweek or Thursday. Yes, we will. Recap show. Yes, we will. With our with our thoughts on Berlin. Yes. So that'll come out still this week. So you won't have to wait a whole week to get our reactions to Berlin. Sorry, everybody. I keep, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm obviously so excited about this race. I'm still talking about it's it even after good. it happens. It's going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So anyway, so that's, that's the deal. Check out Kipchoge's, or really the Breaking 2 documentary and Kip, the article on Kipchoge that we'll post in the show notes. I didn't get to see that. Really One question for you, Chris. What about the other two guys that were that were his that were his compatriots in this in this attack? How did they look on how did they represent them in that? Because you know, after the after the race was over, it was all about was all about Kipchoge, of course. And you and I were kind of a little bit like dismissive of especially of the uh of the one guy who was the, the more the 800 meter rug guy who ended up struggling through in 213 or whatever. Yeah. Did they say anything else about them or did they just leave the camera on Kipchoge and let uh, it all go? No, they, they covered them all. The, it was, I, I'm going to butcher the first names, but Lisa, the Ethiopian mm-hmm. to DC, the Eritrean half marathon world record holder who ended up, he ran a marathon PR two six that day. And then Lisa was way back in 214. Yeah. Although you got to give him credit for finishing because man he was running solo for yeah you know almost the whole day yeah, nearly the whole thing <laughs> so but they did cover them equally at least in the in the build up but the one the Ethiopian Lisa they had went to check in on him at certain of their camps and and things like that and it was obvious that he hadn't been doing the training. <laughs> so <laughs> they're like, this guy is not fit. You know, <laughs> he's still going to do fine in the tune-up. I think he ran 102 in the half yeah. marathon tune-up yep. because he's just a monster. He's just a stud. But yeah. th- they said of both of those guys, you know, their testing when it came to VO2 max was better than Kipchoge. Man. But Kipchoge's efficiency was better and so those guys, especially the half marathoner to DC, he was he's more of a power runner. And so you can do that for a while, but you can't, you can't do that over 26.2 miles. You have to have the, some of the efficiency that Kipchoge has. So they covered them uh, and, and they kind of showed their transitions from that tune-up half marathon to the thing. And in the end, really, they gave them credit for going for it, for showing mm-hmm. up. And for going out at that pace, you know, one of the scientists said for them it was, quote, suicidal pace, really, because they weren't ready like Kipchoge was. But they did it. And I think Elisa held on for about eight miles. And then the other guy started falling off about halfway. But neither of them sniffed close to where Kipchoge was, obviously. So they covered them and they kind of gave them props for giving, giving it their effort. But it was clear that even to the scientists that there was one guy who had a chance going into yeah. the big day. You know, all the eyes were on Kipchoge, as we suspected. 
All right, so let's switch to our topic. And you know, part of this comes from some listener questions by a listener by the name of Kyle sent us an email asking some questions. You know, he said we kind of talked a lot about training, training principles, mental training, but we haven't talked a lot about some of the supplemental activities you should be doing. It's because it doesn't matter. I'm just playing. <laughs> <laughs> Miles matter, people. Right. <laughs> well, that I mean, that might be the impression that someone has. I know. We that's do what talk I'm about the mileage so much. <laughs> And the mileage is important, but we also preach that you have to do the other activities to be a well-rounded athlete and to stay healthy as a runner in order to supplement your trainings in the right way. One thing I want to say before we dive into and what we're going to do basically is kind of go category by category on supplemental things and talk about our approach to them. And then we're going to give you a little bit of a week in the life view of how all this stuff might fit together in your week. But before we dive in, I want to make the point, Stephen, I'd be curious to get your reactions to this, which is that the formula or the recipe for each individual athlete is going to be different. Some people are going to need to focus more on strength than flexibility. Some people are going to need to do more stretching than foam rolling. Some people are going to need to spend more time on drills and form efficiency versus perhaps strength and mobility. And all of us are working with limited time, constrained resources in terms of time, and we're trying to run as much as we can, but also stay healthy through that. And so you have to ultimately choose the recipe of these activities that works for you, that fits into your schedule, that prioritizes your needs and weaknesses so that you can stay healthy. And so one person's list of supplemental work is going to likely be different from the other person's list. And and that's something that you'll have to kind of experiment with and figure out on your own. And just like we talked about with mental training, a few of these things may be new to you. So we're not telling you to go try 10 new things in your training, but pick one or two of them, work them in, see how they help you. And, you know, and then adjust as you go and learn more as you go. But this isn't a one size fits all approach. And we're not saying that all of you have to do all of these things we're going to talk about. We're saying that you need to pick a subset of these things that are important for your body and work that into your training given the time that you have. So with that kind of intro, Steve, any thoughts or reactions to that? Yeah, especially the most important thing in my view, and I and you know, we have a we have such a wonderful asset number of assets here in Austin, Texas in terms of the people that our athletes can go see. Um, but I think it's crucial that that an athlete not make this make these decisions on what they're doing on their own. I highly recommend going to see a doctor, preferably a, a doctor who has the ability to look at you both as an athlete and as a person. Um, again, we have, we have phenomenal doctors here that can do that. And then suggest to you chiropractic care or or a physical therapist care someone who can get a good bead on where you at we had run lab here uh, on um, dr. Davis who talked a little bit about biomechanics and talked a little bit about form and and that, that kind of thing we have such a great asset there we also have the folks at Mondo Peter and Katie who do a great job but look in your community for someone who understands the sport of running 
can get a bead on where your strengths and weaknesses are and maybe make some suggestions when it comes to either the strength training or some of the what we might call physical therapy or prehabilitation and rehabilitation exercises you might do. So this is that sort of asterisk that goes at the beginning of every book that talks about physical activity and says, please go check your doctor. We can't be held responsible. I'm not saying it from a responsibility standpoint. I'm just saying go talk to someone who is a sports doctor or under someone who understands the way your running body moves through space and get in to see either a chiropractor or a, or a PT or someone who's an expert in this area because they can make an absolute critical difference in the kinds of choices and the kinds of exercises you might do. What do you think about that, Chris? Completely agree. And, you know, I, when I'm in heavy training, I have practitioners that I see regularly. Once a week, Mondo is here. And so they're doing manual therapy on my sort of weak areas to help keep things in check i also go to a chiropractor once a month and dr noah moose here in austin who helps me with alignment and also muscle activation he does some muscle activation techniques to keep all of my muscles firing and making sure that my glutes for example aren't falling asleep which sometimes they do so that's a regular part of my routine but both of those resources for me have been helpful in understanding what i need to do supplementally on my own time to stay healthy. The other bit of preamble here that's worth giving is that, and Greg McMillan, who's a great online coach, wrote the book, You Only Faster, is a great training resource out there as well. He talks about how the aerobic system develops much faster than the neuromuscular system. So especially for somebody who's new to running or new to running certain paces because of a progression you might be seeing in terms of getting faster your 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 skeletal system your musculoskeletal system will lag behind your aerobic system's ability and so unless you're doing the work to keep up with that then you're gonna break as you get faster you're just simply gonna break that point is also further made as you as you get older for anybody who's 40 plus listening you know these supplemental exercises become absolutely you know, deal breakers or, you know, brass tacks, you know, important elements in order to stay healthy as you, as you age as well. So no matter what, if you're getting faster, if you're pushing your limits, you need to be doing some version of these things that we talk about. And then it's a matter of finding a coach and, or medical resources to help you figure out how to prioritize this list for yourself. But let's walk through it, Steve. And we're going to start with the running, a running component, because, you know, that's what we do. And this was actually one of Kyle's questions who, who sent us uh, a list of things. And he was asking, you know, what do you guys recommend in terms of warm-up and cool-down before and after a workout, particularly, in order to make sure you're primed and ready to have, you know, a good, solid, healthy workout? So I'll take that question to you, Steve. What are the components of a good warm-up and cool-down? Well, I like to talk about the idea of warming up and cooling down. I like to use the term turning the lights on and turning the lights off. Um, you know, it, it it's funny when I think about the work that my Team Rogue does, group does. Th- if anybody looked at us, Chris, they would say these people do absolutely no warm-up. They do no drills. They do no workout. They do nothing at all. They, they, 
they don't. The only people in my group that actually do any of that are the folks that have come over to my group from your group, because <laughs> you do you do have the time or use that utilize the time and energy to teach them that. Um, I don't do much of that with my group, but the only reason I don't do that is because. I've got an hour and 30 minutes with these folks and they're all training for marathons. But if I had another 15 to 20 minutes, every single one of my athletes would do what my UT athletes had done, what my, my, my post-collegiate group did, which is go through a basic, simple regimen of turning the lights on. And um, for my group, but for my, for my athletes, what I would suggest or I'd suggest to anybody out there is first walk in the... Walk in the front door of your, your training facility or walk out your front door and into, your, into, your, into a room, your living room or whatever else. Get on the ground. Sit down. Feel your feet. What are they doing? Feel your calves and your, your fat calves and your legs. Stretch them out. Move them. Touch them. Feel around. What's going on on your, bo on your body? What's happening? Do you have any areas that are just excruciating and having an issue? And, and just check in with them. You know, that would be my first thing that I would always do. That's what I always did as an athlete. That's what I asked my athletes to do. Just, just get acquainted with what's going on. And then um, do some light. What I really recommend is some really light skipping drills to start. Just skip. Find an open space and skip maybe... 15, 20 meters down, forward, 15, 20 meters down, backwards. Um, do some leg swings. In each case, Chris, I'd probably add a little bit of a different nuance, and maybe I would, I would each week add a little bit more to what my athletes are doing. But basically what I'm trying to do is turn the lights on and get those muscles. Nothing that's ballistic, jumping, pushing, pushing hard, but mostly just working it all and trying to get every single tenement, tendon and ligament moving around. And then we walk out the door and we warm up. I'm, I'm a big 20-minute warm-up minimum person. The only time I ever don't want less than 20 minutes is if I'm going to do, if I've got a limited window of time and I've got, well, actually, there's never, almost no time do I ever say less than 20 minutes. Have you ever heard me say less than 20 minutes for a warm-up? Only, only on long run workouts where for some reason you want us to kind of get right oh, into it. Oh, that's because I want people yeah. to be ready for what they might do in a marathon because right. some people don't ever do anything in a marathon. But, but otherwise, no. Usually it's more than 20 minutes. So that's kind of what I do. That's kind of what I suggest. Um, another thing that I think is really valuable for all runners is to do a few strides in in that. Now, this isn't for your easy run, but this is prior to a track workout or prior to something that's going any pace like faster than I would say half marathon pace, you'd want to turn. You'd want to do some strides as well, Chris. I know you have a really pretty regimented warm up process that you work with your group. Give us a little idea what what you guys do. Yeah. So first of all, I want to say we don't recommend static stretching before you run. Oh yeah, I should have said that. that. Yeah. Sometimes is a question. What about stretching? No stretching before you run. Your muscles aren't prepared for it, and and really. It, it's going to only be more detrimental than it is helpful. Yeah, it's kind of what I was saying about feeling your body. And my, my feeling your body of touching your calves, your kill, your feet, moving around a little bit is like sort of like stretching without stretching, you right. know? But Yeah, so so what my group does is we do, typically it's a mile and a half warm-up. So it usually is just shy of 20 minutes for most people. But super easy warm-up. I like to tell people sort of let your body dictate that warm-up pace. And for some people, it might mean that you start by walking at a brisk pace before you actually kind of roll into a jog. But you don't want to force it out the door. You want to let your body kind of dictate how you start. Start as slow as your body needs to. 
really, really focus on going easy in that warm up. And if, especially in that time, if you can't have a conversation with somebody who might be with you, then you're going too fast. A lot of people I know warm up too quickly and they kind of turn the lights on too fast, or too abruptly. And there's actually uh, evidence, heart rate evidence, that shows that if you if you go from resting heart rate to sort of you know some sort of working heart rate too fast, then you limit your ability to get output on that given day. So you really want to. In fact, if you read uh, Phil Maffetone's book on heart rate training, he talks about the importance of covering every heart rate zone wow. as you build in preparation for a workout before you kind of launch into whatever workout zones you're going to be in. So he's like, it's important to kind of go through all those heart rate zones and not skip them. Sounds like turning the lights on. Exactly. So you want to go really easy. Naturally, you might pick it up as you move, but only because your body's kind of allowing that happen, allowing that to happen as the wheels loosen up. So one and a half ish mile warm up. Then we always do a set of drills that we do. There's a very rare occasion when we won't do them if we're not doing an intense workout, maybe like a longer easy run or maybe a lighter fart lick within a run. But almost every time we're doing any real intense work, we have a set of drills that I can share and post. Uh, and I have a video for it as well. That includes things like Heel toe walks, heel toe skips, high knees, butt flicks, skipping drills. We do some side to side, some karaoke over and under kind of things. And then we always finish those with a couple of warm up strides before we jump into the workout. So for us, that's every single time. And it's and those drills are, do two things. They're a dynamic warm up tool. So they actually wake up the muscles and and give you sort of like dynamic mobility in order to open up the range of motion in those movements. But they also are a form and efficiency tool as well. So done consistently week in and week out, it'll help you become more efficient over time. So it's kind of a dual purpose as a part of that warm up. Incidentally, those drills I will do before a race as well because it kind of helps me turn the lights on. So that's what we do in advance of a workout. And Basically, I think the message here is that, you know, it doesn't have to be one thing or another, but you need to kind of find the routine that works for you. That's going to include some easy running of one and a half miles to 20 minutes and then likely some version of drills, form drills, dynamic mobility work in order to prime yourself for that workout. Any other thoughts on warm up before we talk cool down? I think what's important, you know, one of the things, Chris, we've talked about many, many times, well, we've done entire podcast episodes, multiples on multi on mental training. I think this is a great time for a person to think about, if especially prior to a workout, if this is more than an easy run, but a workout, is to get the set ready, the mindset ready. And to utilize that time, I've seen so many, that time wisely, and that time to check in on the key objectives, um, expectations, and designs for what that workout is supposed to include. If a workout, the, le the higher intensity and the more difficult the workout, the less conversation you should be hearing from people during their warm-ups and drills. I occasionally be, up, be at the track with some other groups around, and people are talking about anything and everything under the sun. And I'm like, well, that's not going to be a good workout because 
their mindset's not right. And so here's an opportunity for you to utilize some of the mental training techniques we've talked about, maybe checking in with your self-talk, what's going on there, whatever it is you're working on that from a mental training perspective, check in with that as you're doing your drills because you can both, you can combine the body and the mind at the same time to effectively get the most out of that next, that training session. Get your game face on. Now let's talk cool down. So what do you recommend there? Cool down really to me is um, the key thing to a cool down is to be sure that the body has a chance to um, get, it's not really even recovery, it's just to bring the heart rate down. Um, One of my real big pet peeves are people who do extensive drills and exercises immediately after a run if it's not, if it's a quality day. Um, I think all those things should be done on easy run days and preferably at another time. Um, the only thing I think that might be included for some folks in a cool down process from a workout are strides occasionally depending on the workout, but generally it shouldn't be, it should be the cool down should be whatever distance you need to bring that heart rate down and get back to your, to, to your vehicle or where you need to go. Another a little bit of a pet peeve of mine are people who on quality days decide to gerbil. Gerbil is a non-technical <laughs> term I like to utilize, which is to make sure that someone's Garmin reads exactly the way they want it to read when they post it on their Strava account. I know you're out there, gerblers, and I see you, and I shame you. But my point is, is that you need to just do the cool down that's appropriate for that day. And if you need to get your miles to a, a specific spot, Choose to go an extra mile on your on your on your easy run day, at another time, and don't try to extend the long run or turn it into something else. Each training session should have its particular purpose, even if it's a range of paces. It should still have its particular purpose, and you don't need to add too many other things to the pie. I think that that's a dan- that's what I see a lot of athletes doing, um, and I think. The only argument that I could possibly hear for someone to do extensive drills and extensive other work right after in there as a part of their cool down or going longer is because they only run three days a week and this is the only time they had to do it. That would be a good argument, but that's the only other argument I could possibly conceive of. So that's what I think of as a cool down is it should be the least intensive, the least problematic, the least thoughtful part of the process because you're just trying to get as cooled down as quick as you can, meet the minimum objective in terms of where you need to be volume and not, and not try to gerbil your way up, up, up or down anywhere. I love messing with the Strava geeks by posting a run that's like 9.9 <laughs> miles. <laughs> I think it drives, I don't, it may not, but I think it in my head it drives them crazy. <laughs> you know, to me, it's like the warm up and cool down, it, at least the running component should be about the same. You know, it's like for my group, we warm up a mile and a half to our workout. We cool down a mile and a half from the workout. Easy running again. Also, in a lot of ways, starting the same way you start your warm up sort of really slowly because you're kind of getting going again after your last hard interval and you might find that the end of your cool down is a little faster although it should never be fast should be comfortable conversational pace you know again but oftentimes I'm a little bit slower when I start that cool down and then I'm kind of back to a normal running pace normal easy running pace by the end of it as my legs kind of loosen up again so to me, that's it. Pretty simple. And then what you do after that, after the running component of the cool down, is just going to depend on how your routine fits together. And we'll talk about all those components. One key thing, Chris, about the cool down is, too, 
Think about the fact that in your workout you created incredible stress levels. You 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 if you if you did a workout, almost always you, you in some cases you made a, a really high stress levels, and in all in any case a workout you have some stress, and your body needs to calm down from that stress in order to be able to get back into your everyday. And if you if you push that too fast or you get it too hard and you and you don't get the opportunity to cool down, your stress levels never get a chance to drop. So that's another way to think about it in terms of just instead of just heart rate. It's like I, you know, I, you can always tell my athletes that have cooled down pr- appropriately. They just they almost can fall asleep on the, on the, <laughs> on in the in the training facility after they're done. You know, right. yeah. And so, you know, the other thing to mention here is that it's important to do this after races too. A lot of times we neglect that component, especially for shorter races. We'll just finish and we'll get our bagel and banana and hang out with everybody, but not finish the job and do you know, an equivalent cool down after a race as well so that you're ready for your next training loads. Well, the only race that's not appropriate for is a marathon. Correct. But other than that, yes. But even with a marathon, I would argue that you should still be moving, walking around. Oh, I think a walk back to a hotel you know, is... Walking, yep. slowly, easily walking is perfect. That's what makes Chicago such a badass race. E- yeah. Easy walk, warm up, easy walk, cool down, back well, to your hotel. Yeah, and then it's kind of like a cool vibe where everybody sees you with the medal. And yeah, it's awesome. Anyway, so... And so there may be other things beyond the cool down that you do. Foot drills is something we recommend here. Some foam rolling for those that need to work out their kinks. Perhaps some stretching if that's if flexibility is an issue for you. So th- there's some things you might do post cool down as a part of your team. But we'll kind of get to those as we talk through these. So we talked about warm up and cool down. Next thing I want to get to is strength. How does that fit into someone's routine? Because there's really sort of categorizing this very broadly. There's really kind of two types of strength work that could be beneficial for a runner. There's some really intense power-oriented strength work, high high um, weight, low rep kind of squats and things like that. We're using bars and, and heavy weights and low reps. There's a so that's a sort of a power component that if you have time for that can be beneficial. Then there's also a more like body weight oriented strength, but more really strength and mobility kind of stuff where you're focused on core strength, functional body weight strength versus power. So those are kind of two broad categories that you could spend time on. Both of them can be important or helpful, but they're distinct in what they might look like. So Let's talk about the first for a second because I think a lot of runners you might be listening would be surprised to hear that, you know, heavy weight, low rep kind of strength training with your legs might be beneficial. But, you know, you having been a college coach, that had to be a part of the routine that you guys had, had I would imagine. So talk about that and why that kind of work is beneficial for a runner if you have capacity for it. <coughs> it's... it's it's what most people would call Olympic lifting. I, I mean, Im- every coach has a, every every coach running coach at a, an a, an a, at an elite or a high l- collegiate level will have some kind of weight training program. Most of them will have some kind of Olympic lifting, which is like you said, high intensity, high weight, low repetition, because the neuromuscular recruitment that happens in running is so repetitious in the same basic cycle that um, the muscles need to gain more strength and more power um, 
in other ways. And the most effective way to do that is to have a mix of this lower weight, higher repetition, and this higher weight, lower repetition work in conjunction back and forth. This is the most important area. If you are interested in doing um, high weight, low rep work, you need to go to someone who's an expert in this area. You can find them in nearly, if, if you can't find them in your small town, go to the football pro, go to the football program and ask who does their weight training and I bet you they'll find a way to help you. But you want to go in some place where somebody knows what they're doing because the way that you utilize this equipment, the amount of weight and the progression with which you want to add this load needs to be supervised very in, it, it needs to, doesn't need to be every rep supervised, but you need to be set on the path in the correct way, have a periodized program that makes sense with the workouts that you're doing in terms of on the road, and to be sure that it's not always the same lifts and the same, rep and the same weights over and over again because we need to change the stimulus response as frequently as possible. That's why you're lifting the weights in the first place. So some of these exercises might look like deadlifts. They'll look like basic squats they'll look like um well there's a whole wide variety of them but i will tell you anybody that's asking you to do weight to do weights where you're sitting down or you're sitting on a bench and you are if for your legs if you're sitting on a bench and you are isolating some muscle group it, this is not the best way to operate. What you want to be doing are lifts, which is why Olympic lifting is so recommended, is you're doing lifts where your body is in the similar position that you will utilize when you're running. Not necessarily exactly the same position because you're not going to be driving forward or pushing off, but that you're standing upright and you're not sitting on the ground or sitting in a chair or sitting in a... That, that's not going to be as helpful as all the, all, uh, many of the other exercises. So I, I know I'm being a little bit nebulous and a little bit broad here, but that's because... This is the most dangerous area, Chris, for us to give specific recommendations because um, it's uh, it needs to be supervised and you need to be watched. Yeah, you can hurt yourself really easily. But it's crucial. I, I, I know that the best I, – I recruited – when I was at the University of Texas, I would get – and I recruited the women. I was a, had women athletes at my, at, on my, at my school, and so many of them came in like giraffes, just – like they looked great, but they were not very strong. And when they got in the weight room within the first three to six months, they turned out to be, they, they all of a sudden went from being decent runners to being great athletes because they, UT had an incredible weight training program designed to get them very, very strong. And it was game changer for most of those folks because, the, and I think for most of our listeners who are just putting in mile after mile after mile, some form of high intensity, low High intensity, low repetition weight training with bars and and weights will be very beneficial. It's about building that power and explosiveness that we don't get when we're running twenty mile long runs. Exactly, so, it's a balancer. Yeah, so that's something to consider. But again, as Steve mentioned, find an expert, find somebody who's ideally worked with runners, but who understands how to safely implement that type of a program. The other component of strength that probably more people are familiar with is typical body weight work, core strength kind of exercises where you're doing perhaps, you know, planks, uh, unweighted deadlifts, a single leg deadlifts, that kind of stuff, perhaps some donkey kicks and clamshells and stuff like that as a part of a routine to improve your stability and balance and core functional core strength. Now, so there's, a routine there that you can easily find and do, you know, runner's world post these all the time. Of, you <laughs> yeah, know, sure here's do. your, you know, your 
six-pack ab routine. Now, one thing I want to make sure people understand with this type of stuff, though, is that it's not about raw core strength. It's not about having a six-pack abs. It's about core control, stability, being able to balance your body given the loads you're putting on itself and, and do it in a kind of controlled way. There's an interesting anecdote from from Meb when he had his stress fracture post 2008 Olympic trials where he didn't make the team that year and everybody thought, well, Meb is done. He had a stress fracture in the upper leg somewhere. I'm not sure if it was pelvis or femur, but he went to the Olympic center training centers and they did all sorts of testing trying to figure out what was the core cause of it. And they found this tiny little muscle that I don't even, you know, couldn't even name that sort of was a controlling element that was weak that led to his stress fracture. And Meb, who's someone who was already really diligent about doing that supplemental work, kind of found some new things to work this one particular weakness. But it, in that anecdote, he talked about how he learned the fact that it's not necessarily about raw core strength. It's about core control and being able to use that strength in the context of movement. It's not useful sort of on its own, but it needs to be used in the context of how you move, especially as a runner. So this is, again, where I think it's good to find somebody who's an expert, a personal trainer, perhaps a physical therapist who can show you a set of routines that's tailored to perhaps your weak areas. And it's going to look like some of the exercises that I named, but the routine that you find for yourself might be slightly different than someone else's. The things that you need to work on, your weaknesses, might not be the same as someone else. So, again, that's an area to seek out experts. I'll post in the show notes, a routine that I give to my athletes that I think has a pretty good comprehensive list of things that you can do. But, but as I said, I would kind of consider seeking an expert. What are your thoughts on this element of the strength component, Steve? Well, I'm going to repeat the same thing I said about doing the Olympic lifts or the, or the low intense, low uh, repetition, high weight stuff is you will want to get, do some things when you're laying on the ground and you're going to want to do some things where you're, um, you know, like you said, uh, donkey kicks and things like that. But a lot of what you're doing, you're going to want to be standing upright to utilize because what we're doing when we're running, I love to say this, but people don't, people never, walkers walk, runners fly. At some point in time, if you're running, your feet are off of the ground, which means one foot is hitting the ground by itself, pulling you through the entire, the entire, uh, leg cycle and then pushing back off again. And that is an incredible amount of pressure and balance and strength and a lot of things to hold all at one time. You don't feel it when you're running, but it's happening. And so you want to be doing things that are one-legged, two-leg, one-legged primarily because you're spending most of your time in one leg and you want to do things where you're upright moving forward. Another thing that I can highly recommend, do not be afraid of medicine balls. Medicine balls are so good for you. And medicine balls, you can do so many different activities with them. And it doesn't have to be just medicine balls. It can also be, as you talked about, kettle, the kettlebells and other things. But consider when you're, when you're standing stationary with two feet on the ground, you never run that way. Now, I'm not saying exclusively do that stuff, Chris. I'm just saying that's an area that many people overlook, that they don't look at. And it can be even just turning around, holding a kettlebell in your hand or, or, a, or, a, or a med ball in your, in, your, in your hand on one leg and just turning to your right and turning to your left, turning to your right and turning to your left. Simple stuff that almost any PT, and this is where PTs can be especially helpful because this is what their training is in. Um, 
But that that's my main th- crucial thing. The other thing is, if you're going to do this stuff, and you're going to do it en- enough work, um, well, I get the. I'm not sure if I'm I'm jumping the gun here, Chris. Tell me if I am because you've got mm-hmm. the plan here. But it's kind of really crucial when you time this as well. There are optimal times to do this kind of work. Um, I always suggest that if you're going to do this kind of training, this supplemental training that's not super high intensity and low weight, that you try to do it right after your workout. The most optimal time to do this is in the PM after a quality workout. Um, And the reason is, is because your body will secrete more testosterone than almost any other time when it's been tired, done some work, and it does work that's very different from the work you were doing running. And your body will send super compensation and, and it'll send special gifts to you that will help you recuperate and recover. I know for many people the idea of, of going out and getting to the weight room or getting in and doing some strength training immediately after a workout or a couple of, or you know six to eight hours afterwards is anathema to them. They couldn't even conceive of doing that. But, but research has told folks that this is the best time to do it. So if you're going to do weight training like that, the optimal time to do it is a couple of hours. You know, optimal is six hours after a workout. But for many people, that's just not workable. Even doing it just after the workout is good. And the other reason for that, Chris, is that now your hard days stay hard and your recovery days stay easy. And it um, doesn't mean that you wouldn't do any sh- short core work or you wouldn't do any other strength training or you wouldn't do anything else on your easy day. But... If you got a two-a-day on your easy day and you're only running 40 to 50 miles a week, that, that that's not really recuperation and recovery. If you can get that done in the 12 hours to eight hours after a quality workout, I think you'll see huge benefits. I see a lot of athletes, especially that are new to the game, that have knee pain. Runner's knee is a common malady, typically pain right into the center of the kneecap. And they're often considering or thinking that maybe they have the wrong shoes or something most of the time it's a simple case of having weak stabilizing muscles and and poor balance and if you think about the fact that for hundreds upon thousands of split second moments during each run you're balancing on one leg then what happens if you have poor balance if those muscles aren't stabilizing that leg as they should then the joint picks up the load so you go from the muscles doing the work and picking up the load to your joint picking up the load, and that's why you have pain. Absolutely. So this stuff, this balance, stability work is really important. And I would say if you're, if you're going to add something, a strength component, this one is more important than the Olympic-style lifting and the, and the high-intensity stuff. But we mentioned the high-intensity stuff because if you are looking for a breakthrough, it is a way to get it. But I would add this sort of stability, functional, core strength first. Okay, let's switch and now talk about stretching. And I'm going to combine stretching and mobility because I think there's really, if you think about it in, in the latest kind of thinking of coaching, mobility is more important than flexibility for a runner. You'll see a lot of information out there about some studies you might see in the New York Times say, well, stretching is unimportant for a runner. That's not necessarily true. I mean, it could be for certain runners who don't have flexibility issues, but I think mobility for most people is more important than flexibility. I can say for me, I don't stretch ever at all. I'm not super flexible, but I've not found that flexibility is a limiter for me, but mobility is a limiter for me. And particularly 
ankle mobility is a limiter for me. I've got some issues where my left ankle in particular doesn't dorsiflex as well as my other ankle. So what happens, and it's likely due to a sprained ankle I suffered as a soccer player growing up, but what happens basically is because that ankle isn't moving fully through the range of motion up and down, it minimizes my ability to dissipate forces when I'm in heavy training mode. And then that can cause issues. It's caused a stress fracture in my heel. It's caused likely a long time ago, a stress fracture in my tibia. So the lack of mobility in the ankle is a problem for me. So I do ankle mobility exercises. I also do ankle mobility manipulations with my physical therapist, ideally once a week if I can see them that way. So mobility, and it could be ankle, could be hip, could be you know other areas, can be more important. It could be low back, could be more important than stretching for most people. The other part of that, and we'll talk more fully about kind of foam rolling and massage in a second, is that you know some people ask me, you know, shouldn't I be stretching if I have tightness somewhere? And so my general answer on that is that the tightness may not be a flexibility issue. It might be the fact that those muscles have a knot in them that's causing your mobility to be restricted. So working out that knot is going to be more important than stretching that area. So if you have perhaps a tight Achilles, then the cause is probably a knot in your calf and not calf flexibility. And if you think about a rope with a knot in it, if you pull on that rope and stretch the rope, the knot gets tighter. So in a lot of ways, foam rolling can be more important as well than stretching in order to keep those muscles moving the way they should. So now I will say as it relates to stretching, we do have a stretching routine of flexibilities or issues. Some people hamstrings tightness, lower back tightness, quad tightness could be something that's restricting your, your ability to move through space fluidly. We do have a routine that I'll post that you can watch a video and kind of see, and I, and we recommend doing that post run, but stretching might not be what you need. You may need something that help kind of helps with mobility. So with all that, it's kind of a teeing up this chapter of our discussion. Steve, what are your thoughts on stretching mobility? Well, I, my first thought is, and, and I could get myself into some trouble with uh, the, the stretching communities out there, but I think stretching is nearly worthless. Stretching is should be done almost exclusively for range of motion, period. And that means just getting yourself to the position where you can do... Uh, I, one, one, one stretch I love to do is to lay on your back and then do a bicycle kick, like what looks like a bicycle kick, but maybe you hold a rope in your hand and you slowly but surely go through that range of motion. It will actually look more like an exercise than a stretch. Every stretch that I suggest or utilize myself is always has some fluid, a bit of fluidity to it so that there's not a static hold for extended period of time because the body doesn't statically hold. Now, I do have one or two stretches I do to just get my core trunk warmed up. I do a little circular hip rotation, and I've, I, my athletes do that. Um, but even that has a fluidity and movement to it. Static stretching is nearly the worst thing that any runner can do. Um, I think that that's why I feel like I never, I never suggest stretching except for where folks need, feel like they have some need for some, um, mobility. The stretches that Chris is going to, that we're going to post on this podcast are really simple, really basic and really fluid. I highly suggest those, but that's the minimum amount of stretching I would suggest. 
What I would suggest is, again, going to see a great physical therapist and go through and find out, as you said, Chris, where are your sticking points? Where are you stuck? And 99% of the time, you're going to do a strengthening exercise to build up the weakness because there's a weakness somewhere. Now, it may be the place that you're stuck is not the actual area that's got a problem. I find so frequently if somebody has a problem in their right hip, something is happening on their left, at the, below the knee on their left leg. And, and if something is happening in their, um, somewhere in their core, that they have another issue in another, in another area. And uh, you're not going to be able to, unless this is an issue you've had ongoing, like you know, Chris, I've got, and you've got some ankle dorsiflexions issues. So you know, you've gone through, your PT has shown you, you've paid those dollars, you've done that deposit, you know what you're doing, you know how to stay on it, continue to do those exercises. I like to say any issue that you have that has a mobility issue is chronic. I would also like to say, even though I get in trouble saying this word, it's almost terminal, right? <laughs> it's going to be with you till you die, right? right? So always you this. always have this and you're always going to need to work it. And I see so many people say, oh, that, that, that plantar fasciitis went away. Oh, it didn't go away. It's just lurking, waiting for you to take those three weeks where you don't do anything with it and then pops back up and hits you. But plantar fasciitis is 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 an issue that has a lot more to do with your calf and Achilles. And I guarantee you, if you go talk to a doctor, they may give you some a PT, they may give you a few stretching exercises, but those are going to be much more along the lines of a strengthening exercise to help you get to the place that you need to get to. So again, I apologize to all those absolute stretchers out there. You're, you're not going to get any love from me. I'm going to say this is the place where you really want to go see your PT and work on these areas and get them to give you some significant, some work to work on for it. Because, um, you know, Chris, I say this all the time. We've got, you know, our, our, there's a changing field. The way that things are changing in terms of um, people's health care programs um, and what their insurances cover is, is I know, tough, diff- difficult. But for many people, they can get their insurance to cover a weekly or by a weekly or or two times a month visit to a PT as as part of their a part of their program. If you can do that, I can tell you you have not spent you have spent money so worthwhile. You you need to go do that, and it will keep you happy and healthy and strong and running forward so frequently a, a, P, a PT or a, or a chiropractor who knows what they're doing that understands the sport of running is the greatest investment you can make in your body and the greatest investment you can make in your race results in the future the other thing to mention here on the stretching component is I actually see more injuries as a coach from people that are too flexible yoga can be great for runners because of its stability and kind of core strength elements but it can some motions make you too flexible and i have runners that have injuries because of hyper mobility or hyper flexibility because their their muscles are so flexible that they can't actually stabilize and in those cases it can be dangerous and, and it can cause injuries and you have to address that with strength so that's something else to think about is it is possible to be too flexible at least in our sport so the point there, Chris, is straight. Don't stretch. Strengthen <laughs> and mobilize. And mobilize. And find yep. those range of motion restrictions that where you need help, and get someone who can help you figure out how to keep it mobilized. Let's talk about rolling, foam rolling, trigger point massage therapy. This is another, another critical component for me beyond sort of strength and mobility exercises. It's the thing I spend the most time on outside of running is foam rolling. Everyone, in my opinion, needs a good foam roller. I Absolutely. personally recommend the Trigger Point Grid, which yes. is a $40 
PVC lined foam roller that's super durable, but and can really work every muscle. I even use it for my calves, although some people don't. But it's you know it's a required purchase in my opinion. If you don't have a foam roller, a good foam roller as a runner, then you're missing out, and you should probably be spending ten to twenty minutes with it many times a week working especially your weak areas but also having the ability to kind of move to certain areas that are getting tight as you need to for me my left calf my right quad are sort of the areas that are chronically need in need of foam rolling that i'm always managing to keep pain from manifesting either in my achilles or my right hip which tends to be where the actual pain comes but spending quality time and and for me i'm doing that after typically after my quality workouts but oftentimes in the evenings just at the end of the day when i have time playing with my kids in the in our little playroom and they're running around and i'm on the ground with the foam they're like daddy what are you doing (laughs) i'm on the ground with the foam roller (laughs) kind of you know doing what i can to participate so super important Related to that, obviously, is massage because sometimes there's only so much you can do on your own. That sort of foam rolling is sort of a self-massage tool, but I do think you need to have a good massage practitioner that you can go to. When I'm in heavy training, I will see them every three or four weeks, sometimes more frequently if I'm dealing with an issue. And I have a couple of go-to massage therapists that I have on my Rolodex. But really important to get somebody who can work out those muscles for you sometimes. And I always like to say that if you don't have a healthy fear of your massage therapist, then you've probably got the wrong massage therapist. Yes. This is not a Swedish spa kind of experience. This is a painful, deep breaths or, you know, cry maybe a little bit, walk away sometimes with bruising kind of an experience, but it will leave you the better for it. Yeah. Very few happy endings. (laughs) No, no, never (laughs) never a happy ending there. You know, one thing, Chris, I really like about, one thing that I also suggest for folks, especially those folks who get a foam roller, I don't know how many times I've seen somebody see other people get on their foam roller and just are rolling around on the thing and just like rolling back and forth, rolling back and forth. Listen, it, it, as with a massage therapist, your rolling should cause a bit of pain. It should not be incredibly painful from top to bottom, but it should be a little bit of pain. And I highly suggest going on to Trigger Point's website. They have many little tutorials on how to utilize the tools that they've set. They're, they're such a great educational company. You know, they're based in Austin, Texas. They started here in Austin, Texas. Um, Cassidy Phillips, um, I'll never forget the very first day, he brought his product into the store um, at Runtex that I was working at at the time. And uh, he took me out to the annex and basically put me through my paces. I was like, I told him afterwards, I was like, that's worse than my massage therapist. He said, you should be worse. You should be your own worst massage therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, Cassidy's story is a great story. The TP trigger point story is a great story. But it's really good stuff. Utilize their website. Another thing you can do is also go to your massage therapist. If you have a massage therapist that you go to see once a month or so or once every three weeks, they're, they need you and they respect you. They need your customer, you as a customer, and they will show you. And they also don't want to go in and make so much pain and suffering on you. They want you to use self-massage tools as well. They can frequently, if you give them a little extra time, pay them a little more for another 15 to 20 minutes to show you if you didn't get all the insight that you needed from the Trigger Point website. 
or a coach that you know, you can ask your massage therapist to show you how to effectively use those tools on the part of your body that you need it. And now their job is going to be way easier when you come in. You're not going to be a, a ball. Of, you're just not going to be a completely screwed up you know, muscle group. You're going to have more smooth fluidity and some, and they'll be able to help you effectively get down the road. So don't be afraid to ask folks. That's the other thing. Those, those people who know how to utilize these tools will show you. But again, there, there should not be, you know, super, you shouldn't be like, oh, I can't wait to go see my massage therapist. You should have a little fear and trepidation in going into that room. But it should also not be in a scenario where, you are constantly and consistently bruised coming out of it. That's also another thing that you should be wary of are those massage therapists that feel the need to absolutely break you down. Now, occasionally going to see somebody for some Graston work or some really high-intensity breaking up of scar tissue will cause that kind of, of, of bruising, but that should happen very infrequently. If you've got a massage therapist that beats you to hell, um, you need to look around because th that it cannot be entirely healthy for you. You should be doing your own toughest work. Your massage therapist should be helping you stay fluid. What do you think about agree, that, Chris? Agree. I also want to make the point here that if you have an injury, especially if you know it's like a soft tissue injury, you get you have pain in your hip, pain in your IT band, in your quad, wherever it may be, lower back, hamstring, glutes. If you're having some pain, and you're likely certain that it's a soft tissue issue issue then i always say as a coach the source of the pain is never the cause of the problem never it's always the weak link in the chain that for some reason got yanked and pulled and, and actually broken in the mix so you your job once you identify where that pain is isn't necessarily to roll the area where you have pain it's to find the area near it sometimes close sometimes not that close right. that is actually tight sometimes you know again for me it's my right hip will tighten up the source of the problem is my right quad sometimes when my my left calf is tight i actually get pain in my left or and the source of the problem is actually my left glute tightness that just has that calf tight all the way down the chain so your job once you figure out where the pain is is then to roll all around it and so when I have these issues pop up that I'm not certain what the issue is, then I'll spend 30 minutes, 40 minutes on the foam roller rolling every single muscle I can find around that area up and down the legs until I find that source of tightness or that spot where the pain refers from there to the source of my original pain. And I've uncovered a number of knots that way that suddenly then my injury just went away after then kind of working that area consistently. And once I find that, then I typically will spend 20 minutes a couple times a day or daily in order to work that out until it kind of becomes a non-issue and then I can get back to my normal rolling routine. So that's another thing to think about is that your foam roller is also your detective tool that can help you find where these soft tissue injuries are coming from. All right, let's talk about drills for a second. We mentioned the drills in warm-up that I have my group do. There's some other drills we recommend, foot drills being the most important one component of drills other than sort of warm-up drills that we've already talked about. Talk about foot drills because foot drills were new to me as a coach when I came to Rogue, Steve. So what, were the, what was the genesis of foot drills? What are they for? and give people some basic descriptions of what that looks like, and we have a video for it, which we'll post as well. Chris, you probably didn't need to do foot drills because you were a soccer player. Yeah, that's you right. know what I mean? And almost every single thing you were doing in soccer, you were doing um, the same kinds of, of movements that are happening that you'll see in these foot drills. Um, 
these foot drills came to us from Ross Ebert, who was a, I think he's a, he is a chiropractor or a, or a physical therapist. I can't remember, but we saw the, I saw these um, sometime in the late nineties, early two thousands, um, right when we started Rogue. And I was looking for, I would, I, every single year we would get to, you know, and it, it was every single year we would get to like uh, mid-November and people would start to have serious and significant calf issues or, or they just got over their shin splints, but then their cat, it would go from the front of their knee, their shins, which we would always just tell them, don't worry about it. It's not a real big deal, but they would start having calf issues. Then as we got after the Decker, Mar Decker, Decker half marathon or the Decker, whatever, double Decker or whatever the heck it was at that point in time, we would start to see some lower back issues, some glute issues, some things like that. Then after the New York, after, um, after the Christmas holidays, we would get back. People would start doing their first really long run. IT band syndrome would come almost like you could call it on call. We would get after the second or third year marathon training. We're like, second week in January, everybody has IT band syndrome. And so what we were doing is looking for some kind, and we didn't have time, nor were we really the experts in providing full-on services that a chiropractor or a massage therapist or a doctor would provide. But, of course, as I say all the time, we were playing, we were playing doctors on TV. Um, and I read this in, a, in an obscure journal that this guy, Ross Ebert, came up with this idea of doing these foot drills. And he said, plantar fasciitis, he, he described plantar fasciitis will be gone. Achilles tendonitis will be gone. Um, runner's knee will be gone. And most importantly, you won't get IT band syndrome. And I'm like, whatever. From these little crazy little duck walks and these other things, I was like, I did not believe it. But, you know, we were also looking for new, easy protocols for folks to go through that would be helpful to them because lord almighty we would get them out and do drills and they some of these folks were the least least coordinated human beings i'd ever seen in my life and so i was actually worried about having, having them do real ballistic pushing off drills that elite athletes do and collegiate athletes do so we just decided once one year to do these foot drills it was by a level of i didn't do the math i didn't do the statistics but at an incredible level we had so many fewer injuries and we stuck to it. And now I'm always, I am, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Even my team road group, I don't require them to do foot drills. I recommend it. I recommend every single person do foot drills, especially after their Saturday long run or Sunday long run. But anytime somebody says to me, Oh, this is starting to hurt me. I'll be like, have you done your foot drills? <laughs> no, I haven't done my foot drills in months. There you go. That's it. So it is the one, this is the one piece of running advice I'm going to give you. That is, absolute gold these exercises if you do them two times a week at a minimum and you stay consistent with them i'm not going to you know trauma injuries are going to come out if you have stress related injuries are going to come around but you can get almost every other injury at least managed a little bit as long as you're following a consistent training protocol anybody that decides to go from thanksgiving to the end to New Year's Eve without doing more than a five mile run. When they do that next sixteen to eighteen mile run that they've got to get in before their big race, they're gonna get IT band syndrome. And no no order of foot drills is gonna help them with that. But if you are consistent in your training and you utilize every two two times a week, and you know, Chris, most of our rogue training athletes, they're here at least two times a week. They've got it. We've we've actually put out a a, a pseudo grass little uh, walkway for them to do the drills and we really push it. These drills are basically six different drills that Chris will, sh that will, that will show you and we'll have linked on 
One is basically a Charlie Chaplin walk where you walk with your feet all the way out. One's where you walk with your toes in, kind of like a like a pigeon toe walk. Another one is where you walk um, with your uh, on the tips of your toes. Another one is where you walk on your heels. And another I'm forgetting the other two. I, I've done these. Have, have, I've been preaching these for forever. What's the other one? Oh, uh, standing on the outs, walking on the outsides of your feet, and then walking on the insides of your feet. Um, so that's just a short review of the six basic foot drills that we suggest. Go and look at them, and don't worry about whether you're doing them right or not. Just start doing them. And it's really important to do them barefoot if you can. So you want to find a surface that's soft enough that you can. If you know, we, we have, I've seen people do it on our hard concrete floor if they need to, given limited space, but that's not optimal. But just do these foot drills. I, I, I swear I utilized these, these at the University of Texas, and I had such a limited number of injuries. We've used it at Rogue for many, many years to be the one panacea, the one guarantee that will absolutely help no matter what. So what's happening with this, Chris? It's just a- exaggerating range of motion. It's exaggerating the way that their feet will be placed when they're in the running motion. And there's just something about doing these drills for just a few steps, basically 20 meters, 15 meters long. It, it just makes a huge difference. And it's super simple and quick. But as Steve said, three find, to five minutes max. Find, find some soft surface grass or, or carpet to do it is best. All right. There's... <clears throat> Two other things which I don't want to cover today because I think they're slightly kind of different in connotation. And one of them, eating nutrition component, we're going to have a separate podcast on completely. But it's also important in this recipe for success not to neglect your eating and your nutrition, both quality and quantity, at least when it comes to, especially when it comes to post-workout fueling. That becomes really important. And then also sleep. As the great coach John Shrupp, who's been a guest on our show, has said, sleep, your bed is your number one recovery tool. I think often we forget that in our in our efforts to get in as much activity, both in running and these activities, but also in life as possible. We often neglect sleep in the equation and forget the fact that your best recovery tool is your bed. So... Proper nutrition, proper fueling, post-workout, post-long run, and and getting good sleep are two components of this equation that in a lot of ways are as important as any of these other things. I mean, if you're you're not getting enough sleep, then you can do all the foot drills in the world and you're still going to break down at some point. So we want to make sure that we mention those because those are also elements you got to be thinking about to build your routine that works to keep you healthy and strong. Let me give me a little teaser for that, Chris. Yep. It's my belief that, you know, we talk about, think about what if, what a 3% improvement in your marathon time would be, right? You, you know, you're, no, you're a math guy. You could probably <laughs> figure it out. Pick, don't, don't do 3, do 5%, right? But pick a number and it's pretty appreciable. I mean, it's in the- We're talking th- minutes, yeah. Minutes. I believe that people who are not getting an eight hours of sleep a night consistently- are, uh, they, they could have a 10 to 15% increase in improve, improvement if they slept that much. The people who are out there getting four to six hours sleep a night, you're, you, 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 I, I can guarantee you a 10-minute PR if you'll sleep. I mean, that's how important sleeping is. Wow. We'll, we'll, we'll back it up with some <laughs> data then on, on the next one that we have. But I, I have found that with my athletes, 
nutrition is so crucial and so critical, but people get hungry, right? And, and, and life almost never gets in the way of eating. And so many runners are already really healthy and they take care of themselves and they pay attention to what, they're, what they take into their bodies. But sleep is the great forgotten and the great neglected running aid. And I'm 100% behind what, Chris, what uh, John Shrupp says, it's best recovery tool. But I also think it's, it's more than a recovery tool. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a life and game changer. And we, our society is currently so under, has, is so li- does not have anywhere near enough sleep. So I'm really excited about when we talk about that topic. It'll be a great one to discuss. Okay, so that's our list of sort of supplemental things you should be thinking about. As we said at the top, you can't necessarily do all of these things, but you should pick a couple of them, incorporate them into your routine, see how things play out, and then... Start to add to it as you're able. As we mentioned at the beginning, we're going to just give you a little preview, sort of a week in the life of how this might fit together. And I'm going to start by just using myself as an example, Steve, and then you can kind of riff off of that. But for me, you know, I run six days a week, Monday through Saturday. Typically, I take Sundays off because for me, that's that's a family day where I can kind of focus exclusively on kids and family and also get it a little bit more sleep than I might on another day. But for me, you know, my easy days are Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then my harder or workout days are Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Typically one of Tuesday or Thursday is also an easy day. And we do as team road quality workouts on typically Tuesday or Thursday, and then some component of our long run on Saturday. So for me, Monday, Wednesday, Friday is all about easy work. And primarily on those days post-run, I'm doing my rolling. You know, that's where I spend more time with the foam roller, working those areas like I mentioned, right quad, left calf, but I'll also do lower back glutes as well. And, you know, I'm always working both sides. I never, of course, work just one side, but, you know, my right quad is more of a problem than my left. But I will work both. So those are the days where I'm doing easy runs and foam rolling. Hey, Chris, give them an idea too. I love I love it when you use this perspective. Tell them what you what your what an easy run consists of because that's another piece <laughs> of the puzzle that I think so many people don't hear. And I think I had one of my athletes over here. You tell, or you told one of my athletes um, how easy you ran your runs, and you're a you're a 245 marathoner. Yeah. And this athlete was is a three is a 315 athlete. And so just give, give them a little perspective you know, and you told sure. them what you ran for your easy run. And I think this is another part of this puzzle that we can just touch on really quickly. Tell them a little sure. bit about that. I mean, that. it depends for me, but you know, as Steve said, I'm a 245 marathoner. My marathon pace typically is 615 to 620 in that range if I'm in training mode and on easy days and it'll vary depending on, you know, what has happened around it. But and, and, and also during the summer because of the heat, but it isn't uncommon for me to start an easy run slower than nine minute miles. Yeah, I remember my, my athlete just <laughs> shot snot out of her nose. I she mean, couldn't believe yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, so nearly three minutes slower per mile than my marathon pace. Now, typically the run won't finish that way, but that's how I'll start just because as I said, like on a warm up, you got to let the body dictate the pace. And so on a Monday, after I've taken a day off post a Saturday long run, my body's a little, you know, creaky as I get going on a Monday run. So starting slower, letting my body warm up and then settling into 
typically a pace that's not faster than eight minute miles. You know, when the weather cools down, it will be naturally kind of get in that 730, 745 range. But during the summer, I don't think there's been an easy run where I've averaged faster than eight minute miles. And so, it, you know, nearly at least a minute and a half, nearly two minutes slower than my marathon pace, because that's what I need to recover. And having, having been someone who I didn't really understand this kind of concept of going easy on your easy days until my wife was pregnant for the first time. And I was doing some of my easy running with her. And as she got more advanced in the pregnancy, you know, her pace slowed down from a, you know, nine or 10 minute mile to a 11, 12, 13 minute mile as we kind of waddled later in her pregnancy. And so I was doing still some easy running with her and I, and I had one of my best training seasons that year because I was actually recovering <laughs> for the quality workouts and could put, could, could put more in those quality days. And the thing you have to remember going back to some of our training principles is that the range at which you develop aerobic capacity is super broad. Technically, it is possible to go too slow. And there are some days when you don't want to go slow on an easy run. But for when it's a recovery-related run, going three minutes or per mile or slower isn't necessarily too slow. So there you go, Steve. Thanks, Chris. So easy running and rolling on those days. When I'm in training mode, typically I'll um, do Tuesday, Thursdays. I'll do strength and mobility exercises post the Team Rogue quality days and also on Saturdays as well. I really, really like doing mobility work after a Saturday long run. I think running 18, 20 miles, coming back here and then just sitting and doing nothing, you know, even just rolling. Uh, for me, I've found more success if I do a little bit of mobility, even a little bit of light strength work on, after a Saturday run. I find that I recover better from those days. So my strength mobility days tend to be Tuesday, Thursdays after the long run and Saturdays, uh, sorry, Tuesday, Thursdays, and then after the long, long run on Saturdays. I don't do foot drills. That doesn't fit in for me. I don't do stretching. That doesn't fit in for me. But like I said, I've got mobility exercises and I do foam rolling to kind of work on mobility. The other thing as it relates to recovery that I've found, especially as, as I've become a parent, is I used to really worry post becoming a parent that a Saturday afternoon when I'm having to be more active versus laying on the couch and watching football like I might do before kids. <laughs> you know, now I'm running around to soccer games and, you know, out and about with them all day. I used to worry that that would leave me, you know, in a hole after a Saturday long run. And what I found is that it's actually good for me because none of it's super crazy. I'm walking around. I'm just moving around. We're going to the park. We're going to the game, to a soccer game or something. I'm maybe lightly kicking the ball with them. None of it's rigorous or anything that would stress the body. It's all just movement. And as I tell my athletes all the time, movement equals blood flow equal he equals healing. So I highly recommend on a Saturday, you know, go for an easy walk with the dog. Go for a walk to lunch or brunch. Move around. You know, get up. Don't just lay on the couch because when you lay on the couch, your blood pools in those muscles. It doesn't allow that blood flow to get through there and kind of clear out the waste and prepare you for the next day. So that kind of movement that I get as a part of being a dad on a Saturday afternoon has become a really important part of my routine. For me, also eating I usually try to get a meal, a really good balanced meal within an hour after a long run to make sure that kind of kickstart the recovery process post long run. Sleep is probably 
my biggest area to work on <laughs> <laughs> if we're if we're talking about sleep. <laughs> but but other than that, that's how my routine fits together. You know, for me it's I prioritize in this list of things, I prioritize the rolling, the strength and mobility drills, the strength and mobility work and and I also get a massage as I said once every three or four weeks. How have you seen it fit together for other athletes? I mean, I think that, you know, the that's almost exactly the way that it's recommended to do it. You're 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 having to to put yours together in a little bit of a different way because of your family stresses and the things that go on with it. Um one thing, but I think that it's it it what what we're hearing here mostly is that you're always working, Chris. Even on your off days, you're doing a little bit of work. You're staying tapped in. The only day you have that you're not really doing work is Sundays, um, which I'm always, I've always been a big believer in taking a day off, full day off if you can. Um, everybody has different viewpoints about that. That's an entire another episode to discuss at some point in time. But, um, I, you know, I, I think what you've done is you've utilized the numbers of years that you've been training, the successes and the failures that you've had in terms of the things that have worked for you and haven't worked for you. And you've dialed in a plan of attack that you can stay with consistently that helps you get recuperated and recovered. Again, that's your plan. There might be somebody else who does a few different things differently. I think about, I do coach some triathletes. They spend, their, their, their schedule is going to look, you know, very, very different because they've got two other full-on sports that they're putting in, one of which swimming, which is, you know, you can really, really push yourself on a consistent basis and do two to three really hard workouts in a week, and cycling, which just takes forever, and you have to spend so much time out there doing it. So it really is much more along the lines of finding a ebb and flow and an even keel that allows you to stay the course. One thing we didn't talk about, Chris, is a little bit about uh, there's just a little bit of a thing I'll say about what happens on your down week and what is that? How is that a little bit different? Um, really, what what should be done on your down week is when you should be really focusing on on these ancillary exercises that we're talking about. And and if you've you've if you've only got a little bit of time to do it, this is a place where you could add another ten or fifteen minutes of work because your volume is a little bit lower. Chris and I've talked on a couple of other podcasts about having two weeks up and one week down. Other coaches have athletes do three weeks up and one week down, but think about your down week in terms of your other activities and how you flow them in because you can spend a little bit more time and squeeze a little bit more out of that lemon of 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 a, of a weekly schedule on a drop week. So consider that as. Um, a time for you to do maybe a little bit extra work. I, I'm always a big believer that an athlete that does get some massage work at the very beginning of their drop-down week is usually in the best spot because they've got some of that, a lot of that basic beat-up soreness that they have from the training. They've had one or two easy runs before they get there, maybe a Tuesday or Wednesday they do the massage, and then they've, they've got to go in the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday before and, and get a lot of that stuff that the, that the massage built up, worked out, and then they're ready to go the next week. So there's another little piece of the puzzle to take into consideration on how you, how you plan that recovery and recuperation, those, those other exercises with a drop weight. Agree with all of that. All right, so we are beyond out of time, so we'll wrap it there. But again, as we said, you know, kind of pick a couple of these elements, add it to your routine, and and see how it works and kind of go from there. I'll reinforce something I've said on previous podcasts, which is that one or two of these things done consistently is way better than all of them done inconsistently. So find something you can add consistently, see how it impacts your running, and then go from there. 
All right, so that wraps episode 42 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.